Welcome back to the Blockchain Podcast, your mental massage parlor. I'm your host, retired Lieutenant Colonel Bill Stebbins, carpet bombing the podcast space with truth bombs, where we explore interconnected issues of war, politics, economics, and Bitcoin. I want to thank you for returning and spending a little bit of your most precious resource with me, your time. And I really appreciate my rapidly growing audience. It is absolutely humbling. And I'd ask you to do me a solid. If you think this podcast has been providing you with some great ideas, some thoughts, some things maybe you've never heard of before, some thoughts worthy of consideration, I'd ask you to share this podcast with others who you think might benefit or who might need some cerebral CPR. We have a a good episode today. You know, you feel something is really, really wrong. Really wrong with this world, with the system we're in. I feel it, I know you can feel it. Like an out of control train about to careen off the tracks. Just like animals that sense an earthquake before it happens or, or a tsunami before it hits. You and I sense a major inflection point, something on the horizon. I would like to give you words. I would like to help give you clarity and vision and lucidity to the pervading uneasiness that you know that you feel. And this is what I aim to do in this podcast. It's going to take several episodes to really flesh this out to build the case, to put ideas and concepts and mental models built on actual truth, objective reality, to that which you sense in the deep of the night, which you sense in your gut as you, as you see your world changing before your eyes. And so let's turn first of all to the national debt and the debt ceiling for those of you in the United States I know there's a number of folks outside of the U.S. listening to this podcast, but it's sobering that the national debt is higher than our GDP now. And since we last spoke, our national debt has climbed from $31.7 trillion to $31.8 trillion. In the deadline, when we run out of funds, in the federal government around about 1 June of this year. So we're nearing the deadline. And I just throw this out there right now for whatever it's worth. The price of Bitcoin right now, one Bitcoin is equal $26,700. So just put that on the back of the stove for a minute. And so we have President Biden returning today, actually, Monday when I'm recording this, returning from the G7 summit in Japan, in Hiroshima, Japan. He's going to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to discuss how to raise the debt ceiling. And they're debating and discussing, etc., and we'll see. Again, I've mentioned this is essentially political theater because they will come to an agreement. And 
the U.S. Treasury will be permitted to continue borrowing money to pay already incurred bills. You see, unlike you and I, our federal government cannot live within its means. It refuses and continues to show a trend it cannot and will not live within its means. No, unlike you and I, it's permitted to live fiscally irresponsibly. And your elected leaders, my elected leaders, continually, without fail, allow the Treasury to continue to borrow beyond the limits that are capped. And once again, this will happen, in my estimation, this year as well. And so we have a lot of political theater, a lot of bargaining and posturing and political showmanship, but it will get passed. But there is a possibility that it might not get passed. And, and as a military planner and strategist, one thing, you know, I look at other possible alternatives. Um, you might look for this, you know, if the government was permitted to default. Janet Yellen, the leader of the Fed, the Federal Reserve said it would be catastrophic for our, our economy. In other words, many folks relying on government aid, welfare, social security, would be unpaid. Vets would not receive the retirement checks or, or disability checks. Businesses would fail. Other impacted groups, air traffic controllers, law enforcement, border security would not be paid. Military salaries of active duty, military officers enlisted would, would not be paid. It would be absolutely catastrophic. But if we've learned anything, and you know, actually some of us in the nation see history, we see things play out, and we do learn things, we know that catastrophes, crises, are used for political manipulation. Manipulation, manipulation of us. And so a government default could be and would be blamed on the Republicans. It'd be the Republicans that, that failed to work through a resolution on an already approved budget, budget outlays that just weren't funded because of obstructionist Republicans. You know you would see this again in the upcoming election. It, it would be used to shore up Democratic support to bring people to the Democratic cause, casting Republicans as the cause. And I'll tell you now, I'm neither Republican nor Democratic. I, I don't subscribe to political parties. Our founding fathers warned vehemently against siding with political parties. They saw this happen in Europe. They said it was of great detriment to European politics, political parties. And so it's not outside of the realm of possibility that President Biden would let this ceiling come and go the deadline and permit the government to default, to advance a consolidating power, an agenda of consolidating power. On the other hand, strategies are not foolproof. They might think that something like that they could actually use to their advantage and it could backfire.
Uh, certainly with the presidency of Donald Trump, things backfired wildly beyond what they assumed would occur when he became president. They, they were caught flat-footed. And so they may not gamble with something like this. Further, there's a possibility that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution could be invoked, not necessitating, not needing Republican agreement on expanding the ceiling, the deadline. The 14th Amendment passed on 9 July 1868, and it reads in part, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law shall not be questioned. And so there's a possibility that the 14th Amendment could be invoked and say, look, when a budget is passed, the requisite funding to enable it to be activated, you, you can't block it. So passing the ceiling or enabling the Treasury to go further into debt to fund the, the budget would be a continuing trend of fiscal irresponsibility and recklessness. Defaulting on the debt would be even more immediately calamitous. And what would that say for your mutual funds, for your stocks, for T-bills you may be invested in for your private wealth wherever it's stored well not wherever it's stored is there are there any places where your wealth could be stored that might be immune to a default of the u.s government and the economic catastrophe in janet yellen's words that would occur these are the things that i would offer for you to think about where is your wealth stored right now you might recall, if you're old enough, the economic collapse of 2008, where so much wealth was destroyed overnight, gone. We could be on the verge of that right now. And where would you be tomorrow? Where would you be the week after, the day after, the U.S. government defaulted on its debt because of highly, highly polarized politics are you protected this is the aim of this podcast is to help you think through these things and to analyze your personal strategies and what you're doing right now to protect the wealth of your hard work the wealth of your family the security of your family and so let's move to ukraine for a minute in news of the ukrainian war with russia Despite Western reports to the contrary, and many experts these many, many months who claim that Ukraine seemed to be holding in there and surviving and perhaps doing well on the battlefield, it reports seem to be that Bakhmut has fallen to the Russians. Specifically the Wagner Group, this mercenary kind of quasi-mercenary paramilitary group fighting for Russia. And you see reports that there's growing doubt now. There's doubts among folks in the West that, that Ukraine can win, that it can hold on. Zelensky, President Zelensky, traveled to Japan 
for the G7 summit, pleading for jet fighters and continued funding, continued war materiel. The G7 comprising, of course, the Western economic powers of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the US. Those nations who have structured and organized and dominated the majority of the world's economy based upon the US dollar as the world reserve currency. But as we've seen, this ongoing demonization of Russia, the stiff sanctioning of Russia, the persistent and ongoing encroachment and advancement of NATO all the way to Russia's doorstep, as if we would expect that Russia should just take that and not do anything about that. We never put the shoe on the other foot. You know, other military planners, etc. How would you take it if China developed its own power block and expanded all the way to the U.S. border, seduced Canada and Mexico to join its global strategic power block, and gave military assistance, foreign aid to Canada, to Mexico? Whoa. We would just take that, right? Although, and I'm not saying, and don't read into what I'm saying, I am not saying that Vladimir Putin is a righteous, honorable, good person. He is not. He is absolutely an autocrat and a vile person. However, in geopolitics, you have to see things as they are. There's such a thing as poking an enemy in the eyeball and enticing them to even more violent actions and procedures. How would we take it if China developed a power block that moved right up to our southern border? Oh wait, it has done so. It has done so. Maybe you've heard of BRICS. B-R-I-C-S. BRICS founded in 2009 to challenge the dominance of Western economic power and influence, to challenge the G7, to challenge the IMF and the World Bank in U.S. as the world reserve currency, BRICS, an economic powerhouse, emergent, comprised of Brazil, Russia, India, China, in South Africa. And in the news this last week, guess who else has applied for it and wishes to join BRICS? That would be Mexico. Mexico wants to join BRICS. And you thought Mexico was a friend of the United States government. I spoke in the recent podcast how China was already actively involved economically and industrially with Mexico, and also very specifically as it regards the health of this nation, the fentanyl invasion, bringing fentanyl precursors into the nation of Mexico for further smuggling then north of the border, across the border that's not prioritized 
with the current administration, the Ukrainian border is prioritized as higher significance to the present presidential administration, to the Biden administration, than the southern border. And so China has been bringing fentanyl precursors into this nation via Mexico, Mexican cartels. Mexico now wants to join BRICS and join this group. Mexico, the second largest economy in Latin America after Brazil. But wait, who else wishes to join right now? Egypt, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Algeria. And as of the time of this recording, BRICS comprises 40% of the world's population and 30% of the GDP and 20% of global trade. And so we have this emergent economic, political, potentially, and I would say very likely military bloc opposed to the West now that's emerging and gaining steam. A number of whom, nations who had been operating under the US dollar as the world reserve currency. But now, again, in light of our ongoing and incessant NATO expansionism, our Russian demonization, our Russian sanctions, our absolute lack of effective diplomacy and statesmanship, we have this BRICS block gaining steam Right now, as we speak, India, China, Brazil, Malaysia, Kazakhstan, and others, they're already setting up trade channels outside of the dollar. Saudi Arabia and UAE began selling oil outside of the US market, the US dollar. In February, Iraq agreed to start trading with China in yuan, not US dollars. I would ask you, and my fellow comrades still in the United States military and those who may be out now, who fought with me in Iraq, who tried to do the right thing by the Iraqi people, the best we could, being there and being thrust into this situation, what was that 20-year occupation all for? What was it for? Iraq has thrown off the US dollar and wants to trade in yuan with China. Egypt is issuing bonds in yuan, no longer the US dollar. In April, Bloomberg had an article that said de-dollarization is happening at a stunning pace. And so if you look at the percent of the world using the US dollar as the foreign reserve, the world reserve currency, in the 1970s, it was 85% of the world. In 2001, that had shrunk to 73%. And right now, we are down to 58%. 58%. But the talking heads, the, the financial 50-pound heads out there are going to tell you, hey, the dollar is still strong and is the dominant force there's really no competitor. I would argue with that. I would say they're wrong. It's trending down and you can see it very clearly. 
And how is this going to impact, impact your finances? It's already impacting your your gasoline prices, but see, you're all going for electric cars, right? You're, you're, you're going to buy electric cars and have to stop here and there at these electric stations when you can find them, and you completely ignore the issue of, well, where does electricity come from? See, let, let's walk the dog back further. Do we have any fossil fuels providing the electricity to begin with to charge up electric vehicles and their batteries? And what does it take to manufacture electric batteries? And this will be a topic for another day, but it comes from mines to find a particular metal that's not in this nation and right now is not necessarily a friend of the United States. Anyhow, things to think about, but let's move on. What does all this mean for you, your family's wealth? You work hard, you try to save as much as you can, you try to invest it sensibly, and then you see inflation continuing to climb year after year after year. You see your savings continue to dip. You see your investments not doing well. You cannot decouple politics, foreign policy, wars around the world. You cannot decouple that logically from your personal financial health. But if you are absolutely uninterested in these issues, and, and for many folks, I don't blame you. For many folks, you have no interest in politics. It's it's disgusting to you. It's abhorrent to you. I don't blame you. For many folks, world politics, foreign policy has zero interest to you. Many folks would rather just be entertained. Watch Netflix, go to the ball game, try to cling to some semblance of normality, hoping just hoping that if you ignore it, things will continue on fairly smooth. But I would offer to you, it's like cows out in the pasture just munching away at the grass. Unaware of the cattle truck pulling up into the pasture. And, and, and what that means, just staying oblivious. Don't look at the cattle truck. Let's just keep our heads down keep munching on the, the, the grass, keep munching on the, uh, on the weeds. See, when you realize that your pasture life is affected, that, that suddenly you find yourself herded into a, a, a dirty metal trailer, suddenly you have no, no more access to the pasture, to the sweet grass of the field, well, then now suddenly it's you cannot avoid it anymore and the cattle truck is already parked in the pasture is what i'm suggesting to you the cattle truck has pulled up are you going to be a cow that looks up looks around and starts asking questions hey hold on a minute this thing what is this all about See, if you continue to be an ignorant cow munching away at grass, then you are, you are completely primed and ready to accept the propaganda then, which will be given to you.
the propaganda explaining why you can't eat grass in the pasture anymore, why this calamity has occurred, and what we have to do to get you back to the pasture where life was sweet and the butterflies were flittering around in the nice cool air where you could just chew your cud all night long and not worry about things. You will fall over yourself accepting the explanations that are readily given to you. You'll accept the approved enemies that caused the calamity. And then what you'll end up doing is surrendering more power and control to the central planners, the geniuses out there, the people that are smarter than you and me, you'll surrender to the geniuses that brought about these crises, these colossal problems in the first place. In other words, the failures of their plans. If you would allow me to go into story time for a minute, to, to, to read from you a little, a few pages of Sebastian Edwards' book called American Default, the untold story of FDR, the Supreme Court, and the battle over gold. Allow me to take you back in time before the Second World War, a time when our government started yielding to central planning and this idea that there's an elite that, that can plan out global, global outcomes, economies, smart guys, geniuses, wise guys here who felt that they understood causality in the macroeconomic sphere. Allow me to develop this concept of how our nation steadily departed from the Constitution. How central planning brought about the colossal problems that have matured now that have matured and are so ripe to destroy you and your family's wealth, to destroy your privacy. You see, power consolidates and power is never satisfied. True freedom, number one, is never safe. The safe route does not give you freedom. Freedom demands understanding, clear thinking, and conviction based upon truth. You cannot be free any other way, but we've departed so far from it. This is the story of a forgotten episode in US history. The story of the great debt default of 1933 through 1935. Of the time when the White House, Congress, and the Supreme Court agreed to wipe out more than 40% of public and private debts. This is also the story of the nation's efforts to get out of the Great Depression, bring deflation to an end, and get people back to work. It is the tale of how perplexed economists changed their views about the world and discarded decades-old tenets and dogmas. Finally, it's an account of the early stages of the struggle between President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Supreme Court Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes, a confrontation that led to the President's attempt to pack the Supreme Court 
in February 1937. There are many ways of telling this story. For instance, we could begin in October 1929, when the stock market crashed and the Great Depression was unleashed. Or we could begin on November 8, 1932, when American voters decided to turn their backs on Herbert Hoover and elect Franklin D. Roosevelt by a landslide. But possibly, the best starting point is April 5, 1933, when President Roosevelt, who had been in office for exactly one month, issued an executive order requiring people and businesses to sell within three weeks all their gold hoard holdings to the government at the official price of $20.67 per ounce. The order was published in every newspaper and transmitted over thousands of radio stations. Large signs were placed in post offices around the country. The posters were printed in large block letters and informed the public that everyone had, and this is a quote, to deliver on or before May 1st, 1933, all gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates now owned by them to a Federal Reserve Bank, branch, or agency. Those who didn't comply with the executive order faced criminal penalties, a $10,000 fine or 10 years of imprisonment, or both. The public was shocked. Throughout the history of the nation, gold had been used as a store of value, and many families owned gold coins as part of their savings. Gold was giving as wedding presents, and at bar mitzvahs, and newborns often received a gift of one or two coins from their godparents. The fact that all metal had to be turned in to a relatively new institution, the Federal Reserve had been created less than 20 years earlier, made things even worse. As the May 1st deadline approached, radio announcers reminded families of what they had to do. People could still not believe what was happening. It was true that during the previous months there had been an extraordinarily high demand for the metal and that hoarding had increased sharply. But that was exactly how the system was supposed to work. From time immemorial, people resorted to gold when they faced economic uncertainty, including fears of banks' collapses. Now, I'm pausing from the book for a minute, and I would like you to just reflect on what you've heard. How the American public was absolutely stunned, shocked, at the executive order that FDR pronounced. One day they're chewing their cud out in the pasture, they're happy. Well, they were able to hold gold as a store of value in their families, heirlooms of gold coins. This is a way that they could protect their wealth. And then the next minute, cattle car pulls up, executive order by the President of the United States that they had three weeks to surrender all of their gold coins all of their bullion, this hard money. And to not do so, they would face criminal charges. Think about that. Can you even imagine that occurring? I hope that you can. Because we, we live in a time where this is well within possibility in so many regards nowadays. 
And this is where you have to distinguish between what is legal and what is moral. What is legal today or tomorrow, which changes and has changed throughout history very frequently, and what is morally right and righteous. There was a time in Nazi Germany when it was illegal to trade with Jews, when it was actually legal to dispossess them of property. You see, what's legal at any given time is not the same thing as what's morally righteous. This is a distinction we always have to keep in mind. I resume with the book. In the early hours of March 6th, when he had been barely one day in office, President Roosevelt declared a national banking holiday. Its purpose was to stop massive withdrawals of currency and gold and to put in place an emergency plan to strengthen the nation's financial system. A week later, on March 13th, banks began to reopen their doors and people redeposited their cash and gold in massive amounts. Confidence was on the upswing after President Roosevelt delivered his first fireside chat on Sunday, March 12th. FDR assured the public that those banks that were reopened were solid and in excellent health. As the president had predicted, people were again glad to have their money where it will be safely taken care of. So if things were improving, why was the government forcing the public to part with their gold? Coercing people to sell their hard-earned metal was not an American thing to do. This had never happened before, not even during the Civil War, when the gold standard was suspended and the Treasury issued greenbacks. The Secretary of the Treasury, Will Wooden, tried to explain the policy by saying that, and I'm quoting now, and the book quotes the Treasury Secretary, he says, gold in private hoards serves no useful purpose under current circumstances. When added to the stock of the Federal Reserve Banks, it serves as a basis for currency and credit. This further strengthening of the banking structure adds to its power of service toward recovery. And now I stop quoting from the book for a minute. Listen to that. The Secretary of the Treasury, Will Wooden, said that gold and private hoards serves no useful purpose under current circumstances. Well, who in the hell are you? Would be the response. Who the hell are you to, number one, call a family retaining their hard-earned wealth, retaining their gold under lock and key at their homes? What gives you the right to call that, to demonize it, to call it hoarding, to use this pejorative term? And then to say that it serves no useful purpose. I cannot imagine living at this time. I would have been filled with incredible rage. But once again, these are the central planners at work that are smarter than you and me, see? They're going to determine what you should do with your wealth. This is the 1930s. We've degenerated very far since then, as I will continue to bring out in this podcast. Gold and private hordes serves no useful purpose. 
this is what your federal government thinks. They know better what you should do with your wealth. I continue quoting. The weeks that followed changed America forever. On March 5th, after President Roosevelt convened Congress into an extraordinary session, the legendary 100 days began. Between March and June 1933, Congress passed legislation that would fundamentally alter the way the economy functioned and set the bases for the welfare state. Some of this legislation was later challenged in the court system, and some was eventually declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. While the foundations of the American economy were being profoundly changed by one act of Congress after another, the gold saga initiated with the April 5th executive order continued to unfold. On April 19th, during the 13th press conference of his young presidency, President Roosevelt stated unequivocally that the country was now off the gold standard. He explained that the fundamental goal of abandoning the monetary system that had prevailed since, the, since independence was to help the agricultural sector, which had been struggling for over a decade. He declared, the whole problem before us is to raise commodity prices. The next step in this drama came on May 12th when Congress passed the Agricultural Adjustment Act, AAA. Title III of this legislation included the Thomas Amendment, which authorized the President to increase the official price of gold to up to $41.34 an ounce. A devaluation of the dollar, many thought, would rapidly result in controlled inflation and would help farmers by raising commodity prices and by lightening their debts when expressed in relation to their income. I'm not quoting from the book now. Um, remember this, the Thomas Amendment. The press at the time called the Thomas Amendment the Inflation Amendment. What this amendment effectively did was to give the president, was to give the federal government the power of bringing about inflation, controlled inflation. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Some of you listening to this maybe have degrees in finance, etc. Many of you likely don't. And you, like me, may have thought previously that inflation is just part of the economic cycle. It's just what happens. It's unavoidable. This is not the case. When you go back and look at the history of the United States, what you find at this point is inflation suddenly becoming a thing, a regular thing, hyperinflation events, one after the other occurring. It is not just a natural occurring, unavoidable thing with which we have to contend. And so here we have FDR. And you might just reflect on what you were taught about FDR. Whether you were taught he was generally good in his New Deal with all these programs and he brought us out of the Depression. You know, you might just dig a little bit deeper and search a little more widely and read a little bit more widely than your public school system textbooks and what you've been told. 
And so, by executive order, he outlaws gold held by private individuals and institutions in more than $100, just by executive order. And now with the Thomas Amendment, he has the power to initiate arbitrarily raising the price of gold and devaluing the U.S. dollar to increase inflation. And so I begin quoting again from the book. Things, however, were not as easy as they seemed. In the United States, most debt contracts, both private and public, included a gold clause stating that the debtor committed himself to paying back in gold coin. Not quoting anymore, so you can see what the problem is now. If previous contracts, many contracts that have already been established, had a gold clause where the debt was to be paid in gold coin, what do you do when you no longer have gold coin? What do you do when this has been outlawed now and we come off the gold standard? Quoting again. These clauses were introduced into contracts during the Civil War, a time when two currencies circulated side by side, a currency backed by bullion and one unbacked, the so-called greenbacks issued by the Union's Treasury. Debts that included the gold clause were considered to be more secure, since the amount to be received in payment at some future date was anchored to the price of gold and thus not affected by possible changes in the purchasing power of paper money. After the end of the Civil War, there had been no need to invoke them, but with time, gold clauses came to be considered a normal component of debt contracts. In 1933, however, it became evident that these clauses were a problem. If the currency was devalued with respect to gold, the dollar value of debt subject to the clauses would automatically increase by the amount of the devaluation. This would result in massive bankruptcies and in a huge increase in the public debt. For all practical purposes then, when FDR was inaugurated as president, the gold clauses stood in the way of a devaluation of the dollar. Three months after Roosevelt had become president, on June 5th, Congress passed Joint Resolution Number 10, annulling all gold clauses from future and past contracts. This opened the door for a possible devaluation. And now I'm not quoting. And so now not only do we have this very autocratic president through executive order confiscating gold from private citizens and giving them only three weeks to do so, he then has Congress pass Joint Resolution Number 10, which annuls all gold clauses from past contracts. How do you do that? It's like if you had a mortgage right now in your house. The, the stipulations of the mortgage are set. You've agreed to the previous stipulations and you signed to it and you're committed to it. This is like someone going back into your mortgage and rewriting the conditions of the mortgage that you don't agree to, but you just have to suck it up and accept it. Joint, resolu joint resolution number 10 
made the annulling of these gold clauses legal, but was it right? Was this a right thing to do? The answer is very clearly no. What I'm trying to show you by going into past U.S. history is to show you that government can change laws very, very quickly. Presidents who are far more powerful than the Constitution of the United States require them to be. By executive order now, they can go against what is morally right, what is righteous, and dispossess you of wealth, dispossess you of your security, your privacy. This is the society that we're living in. This is the culture, the government that we're living under right now. Very, very important is you contemplate your current wealth, the monetary system under which you live right now that you may not have even thought about, what are you going to do about this? I have a few more passages and then we'll conclude. On February 18th, 1935, the Supreme Court announced its decision. In all cases, the court voted five to four in favor of the government position. There was a single dissent signed by the four conservative members of the court, known as the Four Horsemen. When the time came to deliver the minority opinion, Justice James Clark McReynolds, a Southern lawyer, and he had served as Attorney General under Woodrow Wilson's first administration, decided to depart from protocol. Instead of reading the prepared text, he gave a short speech. He opened his remarks in a low tone A minute into the speech, he paused, and I'm quoting him now. The Constitution, as many of us understood it, the instrument that has meant so much to us, is gone. He then talked about the sanctity of contracts, government obligations, and repudiation under the guise of law. It was clear, he stated, that Congress had the power to adopt a monetary system. But because Congress may adopt a system, it doesn't follow that this may be enforced in violation of existing contracts. He ended his speech with strong words. Shame and humiliation are upon us now. Moral and financial chaos may be confidently expected. On May 13th, the New York Times published a front-page article entitled, President Signs Farm Bill, Making Inflation the Law. The piece noted that the act gave the president unprecedented control over agricultural production and marketing, and power to generate inflation through money creation and a possible devaluation of the currency through the reduction of the gold content of the dollar of up to 50%. With the passage of the Thomas Amendment, President Roosevelt finally had the legal authority to officially devalue the dollar. 
a number of people had assured him that a weaker dollar with respect to gold would result in a rapid increase in agricultural prices. This is what the president was after. Higher prices that would increase farmers' incomes and would reduce the burden of their debts in real terms. And not quoting now, again, a, on what basis? He had a group of folks around him called the Brain Trust. The Brain Trust of folks closest advisors who gave him these ideas. And, you know, if you study military history at all, you might remember that Lyndon B. Johnson had his whiz kids led by uh, Robert McNamara and what a debacle they uh, gave us in Vietnam. Incredible military failure there, a squandering of blood and treasure, a failure of, of statesmanship. Uh, you know, that's the product of the whiz kids, see, the, the geniuses, they know better. Well, FDR had his, what he called, the brain trust. And they're assuming things. You know, they assume causality of what's going to cause the price of commodities to increase. So that farmers then um, could increase their incomes and their debts that they had, they could pay their debt off. This brings me now to Democratic Senator Carter Glass, an individual who stumped for FDR before he was elected. He campaigned for FDR. And after the passage of the Thomas Amendment, what, again, what the press called the inf Inflation Amendment, he couldn't believe what FDR was doing. Let me continue reading. Democratic Senator Carter Glass, the man who only days before the presidential election had assured the American public that FDR would not devalue the dollar or abandon the gold standard, gave a moving speech opposing the amendment. This is the Thomas Amendment. With a low but intense, firm voice and with tears in his eyes, he told the Senate that with his own hands he had written the sound money plank and the Democratic Party's platform, a promise that was now being betrayed. In his view, the Thomas Amendment meant ruin for the country's credit and reputation. What had Carter Glass said in a previous radio speech before the election? He had spoken of the history of monetary policy in the United States. He argued that the Democratic Party had always supported stability, gold, and low inflation. He then criticized Secretary of the Treasury Ogden Mills for allowing thousands of banks to fail. He closed with a reference to his party's platform and he assured his listeners that the Roosevelt administration would pursue the policies of sound money. Some time shortly after Carter Glass's speech, on November 4th, 1932, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, Roosevelt replied to Hoover's claim that he was a devaluationist. He opened his speech by praising Senator Carter Glass. He then forcefully denied that he would tinker 
with a value of gold. The most important part of FDR's speech was reaffirming a point made by Senator Glass in his radio address. Roosevelt reiterated that since 1917, there had been a covenant between each U.S. government and the American people. He then reminded his listeners that the Democratic platform declared that sound money had to be preserved at all costs. Be it as it may, it is interesting to note that five years later, when the first volumes of FDR's speeches and public papers were published, the Covenant speech was not included. And so what do we make of all of these things? You have a bit more of the puzzle now. You have more things to think about. You see how this government emerged into a clear kleptocracy where the federal government at will and with very little resistance at all steals from us. You see how FDR stole from the American people. Unilaterally, executive order stole their gold. I'm not saying we should go back to a gold standard. I'm not advocating for this at all. I'm saying it's none of the government's business to determine that suddenly things of value that I have that are a store of value can just be arbitrarily taken from me. That me and my family attempting to hold on to and safeguard heirlooms money with store of value in whatever form it is, that that can be characterized as hoarding, as if it's something evil and wrong. Thieving is wrong. But we live in this kleptocracy, and we are now forced to use money that steals from us. The dollar, there's nothing behind it. It's losing value. Fiat currency has such fragile value. Other nations throughout the world are abandoning it. We're not going to have a collapse tomorrow. Now, I'm not a doomsayer suggesting that this is going to be the case. But the cattle truck has pulled up to the pasture. And the doors are open. Why are we forced to use money that the government unapologetically manipulates and experiments with? Where central planners that think they're brilliant and continue to fail again and again manipulate and devalue and fiddle with. And I would ask you to consider, are there other alternatives out there? Would you be interested if there were other alternatives that could not be manipulated, that could not even be touched by any government of the world, that could not be unilaterally devalued? If such a thing existed, like this, would you be interested? Well, if the answer is yes, then I would suggest, if nothing else, you owe it to yourself and to your family, to YouTube, to Rumble, to read about Bitcoin, to read about it just 
learn and understand how it's different than any other cryptocurrency. It's not the same thing. But what is the essence of Bitcoin? And so in future episodes, we'll dig into that in greater detail. So time is running short, and I hope you keep hanging in with me, episode after episode, at least allowing yourself to be challenged with new ideas. And so this is Lieutenant Colonel Stebbins signing off from the Blockchain Bunker. And again, if you find this podcast of any kind of value, maybe it's just entertaining to you, if nothing else. But maybe you're finding things that you've never thought of before or didn't know. If this is of value to you and other folks need to hear it, I would ask that you would share it. Subscribe to this podcast and share it with others. And so I wish you the best. And until we share time again together, God bless you.